Before I begin today's case, I want to apologise for any delays in the next few episode releases. I've managed to contract COVID, and the 10 days isolation has pushed back my schedule somewhat. Hopefully I'll get the next episode and the Patreon exclusive out on time, but there might be a short delay in March while I play research catch-up and visit the locations that I haven't been able to get to. My apologies for this, and I hope that the episodes are worth the wait when they do come out. This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime which some listeners may find distressing, so discretion is advised. There is a folk tale which is said to originate in the market town of Watton in Norfolk. You may have heard of it, because over time the name has become synonymous with certain true crime cases. The story goes that in the event of their parents' death, two small children were left in the care of their aunt and uncle. The uncle, who saw only the inheritance he would receive from the children, gave them to a gang of criminals in order to kill them. The gang took the children into some woods, but unfortunately for the uncle, the men fell out, and one of them, who seemingly had become overcome with a skewed attack of conscience, killed the others. He told the children that he would return with food, But they waited, and waited, and he did not come back. And so they began to wander alone through the woods, until they died. As the children lay on the forest floor, birds came to cover their bodies with leaves. This is the tale of the babes in the wood, and it is said to have originated just outside of Watton, in nearby Wayland Woods. Nowadays, the expression is used to mean a time in which somebody enters into a situation which, because of their innocence, they do not recognise to be potentially dangerous or hostile. There is a board at the very end of Griston Road in Watton. It stands at the beginning of a tarmacked footpath, once known as Gilman's Drift, or to locals, Muddy Lane, that leads out of the town in the direction of the village of Griston, and close by Wayland Woods, where the children are said to have once lain. The board shows a map of the area, gives you a few facts, and tells you about the babes in the wood. This is where I come across the story, standing at the beginning of that footpath one mild Saturday in mid-December of 2021. As I stand at the end of Griston Road, I think a little about the nature of folk tales, how a story or song is passed down orally from person to person, and over time it changes a little. Things are forgotten, others are heightened, and that eventually everyone who knows the tale will recount a slightly different version, at the centre of which is the semblance of the original story. Every close community has their own real or imagined tales, and Watton is no different. First, there was the babes in the wood, and then, much later, there was the death of 14-year-old Joanna Young, whose case has never been solved. Though, if you ask the people who live in Wharton, they'll say that they know who did it. At least they think they do, if the whispers and rumours are to be believed. I'm Jess Carter, and this is The Outlines Podcast.
Joanna Clare Young was born in Norfolk in 1978 to parents Robert and Carol. In 1992, 14-year-old Joanna was a pupil at Wayland High School, which was close to her family home on Merton Road in Wharton. She had an older sister, Emma, and a younger brother called Daniel. By all accounts, she was a typical teenager, a pretty girl with curly bobbed auburn hair and blue eyes which peeked out from behind the curls of her fringe. She was a bright girl, reportedly full of fun. Her father described her as always up to tricks. She loved heavy rock music and dancing. The band Extreme were her favourites and her music was always too loud. She was artistic. She sketched pictures and read horror books, even writing her own stories. And on the wall of her bedroom, among other things, was a scribbled picture of three tombstones. During 1992, she began dating a slightly older boy, 17-year-old Ryan Furman, who lived in Lovell Gardens in Watton with his mother and four brothers. He worked for Bowes, a meat processing firm who boasted a large factory on the outskirts of Watton, and at the time were reportedly the town's biggest employers. The couple had met at the Enterprise Club, a youth club in nearby Deerham which Joanna and her friend Beverly Morley would visit. Ryan later described their relationship by saying, I had a very close relationship with Joanna, and she was good fun to be with. She was cheerful and bubbly. We spent some good times together, especially round her house looking through photo albums of her when she was young. I got on well with her mum and dad, and when I took her to fairs I won teddy bears for her room. He said that she was very cheerful, but also extremely sensitive. If she thought that people did not like her, or were ignoring her, she would become paranoid. Sometimes she talked a bit to Ryan about running away, but it seems as if it were in that casual way that teenagers do when they become restless. And in Watton, there were plenty of reasons to become restless. The day that my partner and I visited the town, it was surprisingly quiet. And as we drove down the high street on our way to Griston Road, I remember thinking that you'd never know it was almost Christmas. There were no lights on the shops, and the grey skies above us seemed to reflect the hunched posture of those few who walked along the pavements. The shops in the town are the kind you'd expect to see. Estate agents, a cafe, a couple of takeaways, including the fish and chip shop, Gary's Place, whose pun is very much intended. Nowadays, things along Watton High Street don't seem to be that different to how they were in the early 90s. A 1993 article called Murder Among Children said, Around six, the children start to gather in the cafe in the high street, sitting at the moulded plastic tables, pushing buttons round the ashtray until the cafe closes at seven, and they move across the road to outside the Gateway supermarket. Years ago, in Watton, there was an Odeon cinema and an ice rink, and there used to be regular discos at the Queen's Hall. They've all gone now. Only last year there was a skateboard ramp, but that got stolen. There's no railway station anymore, and there are no evening buses either, so there's no way of tackling the 25-mile trip to Norwich. There's youth club on Tuesday evenings, 
and sometimes there's football training for the boys on Wednesdays. But mostly they just sit around outside gateways, blowing little smoke rings and practicing their spitting. There's nothing to say that Joanna was part of this group of kids, a group who would sometimes get caught stealing, or getting high or drunk, or having underage sex around the area, though she almost definitely would have known most of them. I don't know about you, but that whole scene sounds familiar to me. Back in the early 2000s, when I was 14, I lived in a village not dissimilar to Watton. Where I come from, the youth club was next to the local primary school, and the kids would hang out on a bench in front of the co-op, and sometimes you'd have to tell them to fuck off, and other times you'd chat to them for a little, depending on who was around. They would share beer and cigarettes between them, a cheap pack of ten-something and a couple of cans. When I think back on that time, what I mostly remember was the sense of being trapped in the place. Like Joanna, if I wanted a lift somewhere, I'd have to rely on someone older with a car or a bike, or the buses that only ran until ten o'clock, or I'd just have to wander around aimlessly, looking for something to do. On Wednesday the 23rd of December 1992, Joanna was at home with her family in their house on Merton Road. To Robert and Carol Young, it seemed like any other day. Joanna was her usual happy self. She'd spent some time earlier with her friend Beverly before coming home to her room, and then, at around half past seven that evening, while her younger brother Daniel was whining about a broken computer game, she'd asked if it was okay for her to go out. Her parents said yes, but told her, don't be back late. And so, five foot four Joanna, who was dressed in a purple anorak, a bottle green bodysuit, blue jeans and black matchstick hiker trainers, stepped out into the cold and foggy night. It was reportedly minus three that evening, and the fog was dense. Joanna took no money with her, but headed down Merton Road in the direction of Watton High Street, where she was seen by 15-year-old Justin Pike, as she passed by Mr Chips, the fish and chip shop. Justin later told a national newspaper that she seemed to ignore me and just turned the other way. That wasn't like her. Usually, Joanna would hang out with the kids who lingered in the Den Cafe on the High Street, and when that closed for the evening, moved to the bus stop opposite the doorway of Gateway's supermarket, where they'd gather in a huddle. That Wednesday evening was reportedly too cold and foggy for many people to be out, and Joanna's movements after she passed by Mr Chips become nothing more than a series of guesses. The night got later and later, and when Joanna didn't return home, her parents began to worry. Her dad, Robert, would say, we were very worried when she didn't come in, but we thought it was because the weather was bad and that she was staying with friends. It wasn't until six the next morning, Christmas Eve, that the sound of Joanna's alarm ringing in her empty room alerted Robert and Carol Young to the fact that she had not come home to collect her bag for her paper round. It was then that her parents called the police. At around 10.30 on Christmas Eve morning, not long after the Youngs had raised the alarm, 
a man who was walking his dog along what is now the nicely tarmacked footpath at the end of Griston Road, and at the time was no more than an unmade track with the nickname Muddy Lane, came across something strange. He spotted two black trainers, matchstick hikers, placed neatly side by side in the hedgerow. About 200 yards further down the lane were a pair of pants and tights. Later, these would be confirmed to be Joanna's. It's difficult to get a grasp on the exact timeline of these discoveries. Between Christmas Eve and Boxing Day morning, the young family, friends, relatives and the police began their search for Joanna. There was an article published on Boxing Day 1992 in the Eastern Daily Press, in which the police say that there was nothing at the time which would make them fear an incident involving another person. In the same article, it says that police were concentrating on the Merton side of town, in the countryside close to where Joanna lived, and about a mile away by road from the place where her shoes were spotted. Reading between the lines, I think this means that while her shoes and clothing were already in the lane on Christmas Eve morning, they were not reported until after the publication of the Boxing Day article on Joanna's disappearance, when another man, who the Norfolk Police website also describes as a dog walker, stumbled across them that afternoon and called the police. Following the news that the shoes were found on Gilman's Drift, the police's search shifted to that side of town and the countryside around the Muddy Lane area. Starting from where her shoes had been discovered, the police worked their way along the track and eventually in the direction of Wayland Wood until they came across a mile pit, 125 to 140 yards away from where her clothes had been. It was there that she was discovered. She lay face down in the water, still wearing her purple anorak, but with nothing on the lower half of her body. She was covered in scratches, and her post-mortem would later reveal that her death was caused by drowning and a fractured skull. Adding to this, police would soon discover that there was evidence that whoever had put Joanna in the pit had also returned on a number of occasions over Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and Boxing Day to try and further conceal her underneath branches and fallen leaves. I'm a little embarrassed by how long it took me to pin down the location of the mile pit where Joanna's body was discovered. For one thing, the area around Griston Road has changed a fair bit since 1992. Houses have sprung up in a tight row, where before there were a straggle of buildings and industrial units, and what was Gilman's Drift or Muddy Lane is now no longer a muddy lane at all, but a nice, neat, tarmacked walkway. The mile pit itself was on a side path from Gilman's Drift, somewhere on the way to Wayland Woods, and is no longer accessible at all. There is an aerial shot of the area, which was published in the Eastern Daily Press in the aftermath of Joanna's death. It shows a white police tent by the side of a muddy track, which looks like it's been carved out by the wheels of a tractor. It's no more than two muddy ruts with an irregular grassy patch running between them. On the left of the path, where the tent stands are open fields, and to the right is a bare line of dark bushes and tree branches. Past them are more fields. In the distance stands red-bricked houses and two looming water towers. 
There are some photographs of the pit, or pond as it's sometimes referred to, and I'll put them up on my Instagram if you want to have a look. There's a few conflicting reports of the depth and accessibility of the pit. Some say she was in 18 inches of water. Others say that it was seven feet deep in places. Some describe the area as being down a steep bank covered in brambles and branches, but photographs seem to flatten the sides somewhat. Strangely, the most illuminating source I could find came from a 2006 series called Britain's Psychic Challenge, in which eight finalists competed to prove their psychic abilities. The final episode featured the three remaining psychics attempting to glean information about Joanna's death. One of them, an industrious woman who calls herself Diane Lazarus, is pictured on Gilman's Drift, purportedly around the location that Joanna's shoes were discovered. From there, she is seen marching over farmers' fields in the direction of what is then revealed to be the Marle Pit. Diane, accompanied by Jackie Moulton, a former detective chief inspector with the Metropolitan Police, and reportedly the inspiration for the character of DCI Jane Tennyson in Prime Suspect, are pictured pulling aside brambles and bare tree branches as they work their way to the sloped bank of the pit. Using trees to steady them on their descent, they slip and slide their way down the mulch of dead leaves which line the pit sides, until they come to stand at the edge of the patch of grey water. There is no frost, but it can't be too dissimilar a time of year to that in which Joanna was killed, and what strikes me is that there's no way you would know the pond existed if you weren't from the area. Even in winter, it's shrouded in a dense tangle of branches and brambles. As a matter of fact, there is a quote from Robert Young in which he says, I've lived in the area for 25 years, and I didn't know about that lane. Not even the hard-to-find pit, but the lane itself. In the days following the discovery of Joanna's body, police from Kings Lynn and Swaffham were drafted in to help search the area around Wayland Wood and Muddy Lane. They took plaster casts of footprints and tyre marks which had been frozen into the hard ground and conducted door-to-door inquiries in an attempt to find anyone who remembered anything strange from the evening of the 23rd of December. They also began to look a little deeper into Joanna's life and her relationship with her family and with her boyfriend, Ryan Furman. It was then that they discovered that Joanna and Ryan had actually broken up a few days before her death. Ryan was brought in for police questioning and spent what was reportedly a total of a little over nine hours explaining his whereabouts, which were either that he had been playing snooker with friends or that he had gone to visit an ex-girlfriend, depending on which source you choose to believe. Regardless of which is correct, Ryan's alibi was confirmed and he was eliminated from inquiries. Ryan spoke a lot to the papers over that time, a move which his mother Linda described as the more correct details go into the press, the more it might jog someone's memory. It didn't stop the people of Watton from gossiping, though, and in one article, Ryan was forced to say, I can't believe someone has done this to her. 
I know there was a three-year difference in our ages and what some people are now saying, but none of it is true. Joanna and I were just boyfriend and girlfriend and I did nothing to harm her. We had split up because I wanted to spend more time with my mates and their motorcycles. But we were going to get back together again in the future. Later, when talking about the moment he was informed of Joanna's disappearance by her sister Emma, Ryan said, A lot went through my mind, and I remembered how she came and met me from work every day. She was very upset when we split up, though, because she said I was the only boyfriend for her. Joanna's friend Beverly agreed with Ryan's statement, saying that she'd seen Joanna on the Monday and that she'd been very upset. She said, There were tears. She had plans for her and Ryan over Christmas, and she told me it wasn't going to be as much fun anymore. But she calmed down eventually and said it may be for the best. If Joanna was upset, she would come talk to me. It seemed as if Monday's chat with Beverly had at least temporarily done the trick. Because on Tuesday the 22nd, Joanna took her trip to Norwich in order to buy a tracksuit especially for Christmas Day. Her family, who did not know that she and Ryan had split up, didn't notice a change in her mood. And it was only after she went missing that they realised that at some time on Wednesday the 23rd, she had taken down all the Christmas cards in her room and placed them in a box on top of her wardrobe. The removal of her Christmas cards was one of several unexplained mysteries which surrounded the day she went missing. There are lots of strange or unexplained things in this case, even by the standards of an unsolved crime. One of these is the question of who sent a mysterious postcard to the Eastern Daily Press. The postcard, which was received on New Year's Eve, was plain white and in scrawled handwriting which couldn't definitely be linked to just one person. It said, Griston Road, Watton, 23rd of the 12th, 9pm. M. Motorcycle. Youth. Girl. Accompanying the text were two crude stick figures and a bad attempt at a drawing of a motorbike. It's never been established who might have sent the postcard to the paper, but in early January of 1993, a witness did come forward to say that on the evening of the 23rd, through the fog, they had seen a young man and a girl standing at the entrance of Muddy Lane, leaning against a motorbike. Despite this, there were reportedly no motorbike tracks discovered in the area, although that did not stop the people of Watton from theorising as to how the motorcycle could have been involved in the events of the evening, and who the driver might have been. Strangely, despite police's early assertion that, due to the fact that Joanna was stripped of the bottom half of her clothing, she must have been a victim of sexual assault, it was soon established that she had been neither raped nor assaulted, and that the wound to her head, which had initially been assumed to be deliberate, turned out to be consistent with a fall rather than a blow, and that she was probably knocked unconscious from this as a result of her skull being unusually thin. Joanna's footprints could be found leading halfway up Muddy Lane, preserved in the frozen soil. There were no signs of a struggle, and it appeared as if she had willingly accompanied someone up the track. Four weeks after her death, on the 19th of January, Joanna's light blue jeans, 
which until then had remained elusive, reappeared on Muddy Lane, close to where she had been discovered. The jeans had reportedly been washed and returned to the scene, and so police could not gather any new evidence from them. There was apparently no damage to her trousers or underwear, and it's theorised that she must have consented to their removal. That, or, for some reason, they were removed after she had lost consciousness, of course. The only evidence on her body was that of the head wound and those consistent with her having been moved after she sustained the injury. These marks are said to have been scratches on the lower half of her body, as if she had been dragged in a U-shape to the mile pit with someone holding her top half and a second person her feet. The theory for a while was that Joanna and some other person had been messing about on a motorbike and that Joanna had come off the back and then hit her head on the frozen ground. Speaking about the theory in 2017, Detective Chief Inspector Marie James said, It was always a possibility, though never proven, that the head injury could have been caused by coming off of a motorcycle. If that were the case, then the story continues that the driver had panicked, assuming she was dead, and had removed the bottom half of her clothes to make it appear as if she had been assaulted and draw attention away from him, before enlisting help to take her body to the pit. I don't know about you, but there's something about this theory that just doesn't feel very likely. For one thing, who thinks they're improving matters by removing the bottom half of an unconscious girl's clothes? It's just surely not a very logical thing to do, even in the heat of the moment. I actually do have my own idea as to why someone might have removed her jeans and underwear, though. Just shy of a month prior to Joanna's death, not far from Watton, on the outskirts of Norwich, 16-year-old Natalie Pierman, whose case I shall be covering in my next episode, had been found asphyxiated in a lay-by. At the time, it was widely being reported that the bottom half of her clothing had been removed. Now, of course, I'm not saying that these two cases were in any way linked, but perhaps the person responsible for Joanna's death had heard about Natalie's murder and naively hoped that they could refocus the police investigation by making her death appear as if it were perpetrated by the same person. From all of my research... I've discovered that one of the problems police faced in their investigation was that local people were just not very willing to come forward and help inquiries. In an article from the 7th of January 1993, police tell the press that they are staggered that the people of Watton are reluctant to call the incident room with information. They say they believe someone in the community might be shielding Joanna's killer or withholding something important. There are anecdotal accounts of people preferring to tell a friend or colleague instead of the police if they thought they might have witnessed or heard something. One of the problems appeared to be that residents just couldn't believe that this kind of thing could happen in Watton, and even more so that it could be, as police so evidently believed, someone local or with local knowledge. Slowly though, through a combination of appeals in the press and reconstructions of her last known movements, both on radio and television, usable information did begin to trickle in. A witness came forward to say that 11pm on December the 23rd, 
He was out walking his dog down Muddy Lane when the dog heard someone running in the darkness. His dog barked and whoever it was stumbled into a water trough. He shouted at the person and they disappeared so the witness ran to get a torch. But by the time he returned everything was quiet and he couldn't identify who he and his dog had heard. People also began regarding those around them with more suspicion than they would once have done. And it was because of this that the police's prime suspect's name began to find its way into the conversation. I won't be including his name here. He's never been convicted of anything after all. He was 20 years old at the time of Joanna's death and apparently had a bit of a thing for her. It was his work colleagues who had initially called the police after he was supposedly seen with scratches up and down his arms as if he'd forced his way through brambles and branches. He had reportedly been in and out of trouble with the police in the past, mostly for minor things, small-time theft, and there were suspicions that he was bringing in drugs from nearby Thetford to sell to the local teenagers. Some of the kids also told the papers that he had a violent streak, that he'd allegedly broken someone's finger and tried to stab someone else. I don't know how valid these sources were, but I do know that he'd been arrested before, and that an officer told one journalist in 1993 that when he was brought in for questioning over Joanna's death, he refused to speak. The officer said he knew what he was doing. He'd been busted before and he knew the system. He wouldn't say anything and he was too thick to be frightened. I actually find it pretty amazing that this quote exists. Despite being questioned for a total of somewhere over 105 hours, which resulted in the suspect informally accusing the police of harassment, there is an assurance to the quote as if they had their man and just couldn't make it stick. They did try though. They even apparently submitted a report to the Director of Public Prosecutions asking if they could bring charges on the evidence they had, but they were denied. The suspect himself spoke to a couple of papers in 1993, but has been quiet since then. To one he said, Everyone knows they took me in. My solicitor says that I should sue them. My car wasn't even on the road that night. The clutch had gone and it wouldn't even go round the block. Then people who said I had scratches was wrong. I never had scratches. They kept on at me and even took intimate body samples. They done my car. I kept telling them I was home all evening. My mum was there, but she don't remember things well. I hardly even knew Joanna, just to say hello to. I didn't know her well. In the other article, he said, There are a lot of mouthy people who don't like me and are putting the knife in. I'm genuinely innocent, but cops refuse to believe me. They're convinced I killed Joe and dumped her body in the water, but it's not true, and they can't prove a thing against me. The cops gave me a real hard time, and it's poisoned the minds of everyone in the village against me. I don't know what evidence exists that I'm not party to, but even now, 29 years later, this man still appears to be the prime suspect. And despite everything, the rumours persist in following him around. You see whispers of it on social media whenever the case is mentioned, and it won't quite go away. There's a photo of the man which accompanies one of the articles published in 93. He stands outside, 
and leans one arm on what I guess is his car. He's dressed in a football shirt, which is tucked into a pair of light jeans belted high around his waist. His brow is furrowed and face serious. Underneath is the simple caption, I did not kill Joanna. In a 1993 interview with Joanna's dad, Robert, he says of the suspect, I suppose I would like to knock ten bells out of him, really, but that wouldn't solve anything. It makes you feel uncomfortable to have him walking around, but to be fair, we can't be sure that it was him. A lot of people say it was, but we don't know. I have often walked down the high street and looked at a fellow's face and thought, could he have done it? Or if I see someone with an odd face, I wonder, could he have done it? But I've changed a bit now. I suppose I've mellowed and become a bit more forgiving. I did feel a lot of anger, but I feel better now. We trust the police to sort it out for us. They've been very good. Something that continues to bother me when I read about Joanna's case is how vague the details of that night remain. We know she headed out at around half seven in the evening, and that her parents thought she was going to meet someone, a friend maybe, or Ryan. We know that she made it to Watton High Street, which was roughly a ten-minute walk from her house, and that she was seen outside the chip shop at about 8.15. After this, there are no more sightings of her. She may have turned back in the direction of her home on Merton Road, because to reach Muddy Lane you have to walk past her turn-off and keep going for another 15 minutes or so. What led her in this direction is a mystery. Although the most persuasive theory is that she had decided to go and see Ryan, who lived on Lovell Gardens, which is a little further on from Griston Road and the access point to Muddy Lane. We know that Ryan was out that night, and there are no reports that Joanna ever made it that far. But if it was where she intended to head instead, we know that at some point between quarter past eight on the 23rd, and 10.30am on the 24th, when her shoes and pants were spotted, she ended up voluntarily walking along Muddy Lane with an unknown person or persons, and that something happened from which she sustained a head injury and became unconscious. We know that the 11 o'clock witness heard someone acting suspiciously who wanted to avoid detection, and that whoever that person was, they have never come forward. So it could be that it was around this time she was being transported by at least two people to the mile pit where she drowned. This has been an unusual case to cover, because it's difficult to know where to begin when it comes to a death which police seem to think was the result of an accident. There are plenty of things which could fit with this theory, and then there are some which just don't. Why were her pants and shoes found immediately, but her jeans returned to the spot a month later? Why was the bottom half of her clothing removed at all? What was she doing on Muddy Lane that night? And who was she with? The accepted theory is that whoever put her in the pit thought she must have been already dead. Or as Coroner Christopher Starking said at the inquest, what may have started in a youthful prank finished up in tragedy. If it was an accident, we'll never know, as long as the person or persons involved continue to stay quiet. And as time passes, it's beginning to look more and more likely that they will. A little over six months after Joanna's death, 
on the 30th of June 1993. Her funeral was finally held at Watton Parish Church. As the coffin was carried from the church itself to the graveyard, Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven was played. Among the mourners was her ex-boyfriend Ryan, who the newspapers took great interest in describing. He laid a wreath and tearfully said, You'll always be remembered, before having to be comforted by friends, or, as the papers describe them, female friends. Hundreds of people had reportedly packed the church for the service, and the Reverend John Eyre was quoted as saying, Joanna leaves us with most of her dreams unfulfilled, like a flower which budded yet never really blossomed. Joanna's friend Beverly had written a poem for the occasion. It read, We had so many things we didn't do, now there's no more time for me and you. Joe, my close friend, you'll never be compared. Among the wreaths laid were tributes from Joanna's parents and sister. Carol and Robert Young's tribute said, We wish you could have been with us longer, but you'll always be loved. Her sisters read, You may be gone from my life, but you will still be in my heart. It's difficult to write about the death of a child, whether accident or murder, and to do so in a way which gives the facts without being sensationalist or somehow disrespectful to the memory of the person they were. Following Joanna's death, there was plenty of talk around the town of Watton about the supposed deviancy of the kids who lived there. Parents were accused of looking the other way when their children drank or did drugs or had underage sex. But for all that the papers made it sound as if the problems were unique to Watton, of course they weren't, and all of that sensationalism actually took away from what should have been the real story. Joanna. She was a 14-year-old girl who liked horror books and loud music. She had friends who mourned her, and parents for whom Christmas and indeed life would never be the same. Carol Young said, We tried to carry on for the sake of our other children, and as a family... We just continue the best we can. But Joanna is in our thoughts all the time. You put it to the back of your mind. You get through the days, then the months, then the years. But it's always with you. Thank you to everyone who has listened to, followed and taken the time to rate outlines over the past couple of months. I love reading your reviews, and I'll never not get a thrill to see one from the other side of the world. It's still a very surreal experience. Thanks also to my new and returning patrons, Tracy Daly, Tim Freeman and Michelle New. I hope you enjoy the exclusive episodes. I put just as much time into the writing and researching of those cases as I do the public ones, so it's brilliant to know that they're being listened to, and I hope more of you wish to do so in the future. I understand that it can be a big commitment, but as a fully independent podcaster, it really does make all the difference to me. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.